Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care Podcast. Today we tackle a somewhat nebulous syndrome, something we throw around with a few kind of hand-wavy explanations, but we're often fairly light on detail. So hopefully in the next few minutes you'll at least have a few morsels more information that, um, that you can use to stave off all the trainees who are undoubtedly much smarter than you on the ward round, um, but perhaps I'm getting too autobiographical already. This does not appear with any great frequency in O's manual, but there is a nice scientific statement from the American Heart Association that is referenced below. Um, though when you call it a statement you kind of imagine some nervous spokesman in front of a camera trying to explain why his boss has done something naughty but instead this is a 39 page epic review of the topic to start with there are apparently five types of cardiorenal syndrome i'll let that sink in you all thought there was one didn't you well i certainly did type one is the acute deterioration in kidney function seen in cardiogenic shock from um, an acute coronary syndrome for example or an ami um, type two is the slow and chronic deterioration of kidney function in the chronically failing heart so so far so good i think um they then get quite sneaky with type three which they call renal cardiac syndrome do you see what they did there? They've just reversed cardiorenal and called it renal cardiac syndrome. In this scenario, it's the kidney that has been acutely injured and the consequences such as fluid overload cause the heart failure. Type 4 is again renal cardiac with the kidneys causing the heart failure, but this again on a chronic basis. So 1, 2, 3, 4. With me so far? Type 5 is the big bucket where they put all the leftover disease that cause both kidney and heart failure. So you can put things in this bucket like sepsis, cirrhosis, and things like amyloid. Um, but certainly when I use the term in daily practice, I was only ever thinking of types 1 and 2. And, and I suppose that's what we're going to focus on in this tasty morsel. So why does this happen? I'll paraphrase the opening part of the passive physiology section from the scientific statement. Um, Conventionally, we focus on poor forward flow from the heart causing poor renal perfusion, poor GFR, and activation of the RAS system, the renin aldosterone. Oh, I can never do that one. Renin angiotensin aldosterone system. I will we'll confer to it as RAS from now on. But in the style of a telemarketing TV advert, but wait, there's more. Um, poor forward flow is by no means the only pathology, and in fact, high pressures in the venous side likely contribute to the phenomenon of cardiorenal syndrome. For example, we know that a map of 65 millimeters of mercury is a fairly generic target for perfusion pressure for pretty much all organ beds in the body. However, the actual calculation of a perfusion breath pressure is probably better represented as MAP minus CVP, so the differential between the two. Therefore, in those who have CVPs chronically sitting in the 10 to 15 range, you're going to struggle to effectively perfuse their kidneys. Um, You'll even hear this called congestive renal failure on occasion. Along the same lines, it's probably worth thinking about the impact of intra-abdominal pressure on renal perfusion. Those who have tense societies from heart failure are also going to struggle to perfuse their kidneys. Um, there are, of course, a whole bunch more complex neurohormonal, inflammatory type cytokiney thingies that are also going on. But as you can tell, they're well over my head um, as the basic plumber that I am trying to think about with the perfusion pressures. So I've skipped most of those for now, but they are well explained in the paper. You might think that a diagnosis of cardiorenal syndrome might be quite straightforward. We just check a creatinine and if it's high, then bada bing, bada boom, you're done. But there are a fairly bewildering array of tests available for assessing renal function beyond that very blunt stick of creatinine. Things that rejoice in names like NGAL or Stistatin C or looking at um, albuminuria all may have a role in teasing out cardiorenal syndrome from other, is- um, other issues, but not something I've used in my clinical practice. Um, valuable as it is for filling the 39 pages of the scientific statement, I can't see any great relevance to the jobbing intensivist. Of note in the paper, and perhaps obscured by the detail of the available biomarkers, they do note that fluctuations in creatinine 
are often poor representations of actual kidney injury. I took home from this discussion that as long as they are still diureasing effectively, we shouldn't be in a rush to hold the diuretics purely because the creatinine bumped a little. Of note, as part of the diagnostic workup, the statement does give a shout out to the much maligned and greatly missed pulmonary artery catheter. This might allow us to effectively assess congestion while avoiding the terrors of hypoperfusion from volume removal. So, moving on swiftly on to management strategies, I think it's clear that diuretics have a clear role in congested heart failure patients. I do not think that is controversial. However, there does seem to be a reluctance to give diuretics once the creatinine bumps up anywhere above the normal range. There is a pervasive and indeed unfounded belief that loop diuretics are directly nephrotoxic and as such should not be given in this scenario. But if we've been paying attention so far, we'll realise that congestion itself may be causing the kidney injury and decongestion may well fix things. Now, of course, we need to be a doctor about this. We have to think about other causes of AKI beyond simple congestion, but for the sake of the podcast, we'll assume we have the correct diagnosis. So let's say we've done the right thing and we've given a decent dose of loop diuretic despite the bump in the creatinine. We can now often encounter something called the breaking phenomenon. This refers to the idea that we get less and less response to each successive dose of diuretic and this can develop um, over hours. The pathophys of this is definitely beyond the scope of this podcast but involves a nephron doing what it does best in a crisis and it tries to hold on to sodium. You can get around this by making a, a kind of a flanking attack in the nephron by bringing in something like a thiazide in addition. Um, indeed the concept of the nephron bomb um, that we mentioned in Tasty Morsel 68 uh, first made popular to me by Joel Top, Kidney Boy. Um, the nephron bomb is a fairly clinically compelling and somewhat entertaining way to approach pharmacology of diuresis so give that one a little Google. Um, of note there comes a certain point uh, where no matter the diuretic strategy the volume of wee wee produced is just simply insufficient Uh, and this indeed portends a poor prognosis so ultrafiltration with whatever mode of renal replacement therapy you choose seems to be a compelling option but has um unfortunately performed fairly poorly in most trials to date. Now this might be because it simply doesn't work or possibly because those sick enough to qualify for an ultrafiltration trial have already found themselves in a category of patients that are likely to do poorly no matter what. Um, This segues relatively nicely into a section of the document on palliative care. It's important to realise that a referral to ICU for refractory cardiorenal syndrome may simply be a sign that the patient is reaching end of life. Adding an extra machine to a patient at the end of life is not good form and it's incumbent upon us to do the work to figure out if we have some degree of reversibility. Maybe it is from acute congestion, maybe we should decongest them. Or is this indeed just progression of an underlying irreversible disease process which we should manage appropriately um, that's it for this podcast the papers involved were Rangaswamy et al and that's um, for the AHA statement on cardiorenal syndrome classification pathophysiology diagnosis and treatment strategies um, Mullins um, et al there's a couple of papers by Mullins who've done interesting stuff on diuretics so renal sodium avidity and heart failure from pathophysiology to treatment strategies is a good read and evaluation of kidney function throughout the heart failure trajectory a position statement from the Heart Failure Association of the European Society of Cardiology Thanks for listening and I'll speak to you next time.